come first personal recovery depends upon group unity. Without unity, AA dies. Individual liberty, yet great unity. Key to paradox, each AA's life depends on obedience to spiritual principles. The group must survive or the individual will not. Common welfare comes first. How best to live and work together as groups? Tradition two, for a group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders have returned trusted servants. They do not govern. Where does AA get its direction? Sole authority in AA is loving God, as he may express himself in a group conscience. Formation of a group, growing pains, rotating committees are servants of the group. Leaders do not govern, they serve. Does AA have a real leadership, elder statesmen, and bleeding deacons? The group conscience speaks. Tradition three, the only requirement for AA membership is the desire to stop drinking. Early intolerance based on fear. Early intolerance based on fear. To take any way, take away any alcoholic's chance at AA was sometimes to pronounce his death sentence. Membership regulations abandoned. Two examples of experience. Any alcoholic is a member of AA when he says so. Tradition four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or AA groups as a whole, AA as a whole. Every group manages affairs as it pleases except when AA as a whole is threatened. Is such liberty dangerous? The group, like the individual, must eventually conform to principles that guarantee survival. Two storm signals. The group Hi, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Okay. Okay, there you are. I can hear you now. Necessity. 
fear of exploitation, necessity of separating the spiritual from the material, decision to subsist on a, a voluntary contribution zone, placing the responsibility of supporting a headquarters directly upon AA members. We're running expenses plus is headquarters policy. Tradition 8, Alcoholics Anonymous should remain forever non-professional. Their service centers banned for special workers. You can't mix the 12-step and one line of cleaving between voluntary 12-step work and paid for services. AA could not function without full-time service workers. Professional workers are not professional AAs. Relation of AA to industry, education, 12-step work is never paid for, but those who labor and service for us are worthy of their hiring. Tradition 9, as such, I'd never be organized, but we may create a service, service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve special service boards and committees. The General Service Conference, the Board of Trustees, and the group committees cannot issue directives to any members or groups. EAs cannot be dictated to individually or collectively. Absence of, absence of coercion works because unless each EA follows suggested steps to recovery, he signs his own death warrant. Same condition applies to group. Suffering and love are AA's disciplinarians. Difference between spirit of authority and spirit of service. Aim of our service is to bring sobriety within reach of all who want it. Tradition 10. Alcoholics Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the AA name will never be drawn into public controversy. AA does not take, any side, does not take sides in any public controversy. Reluctant to fight is not fight is not a special virtue. Survival and spread of AA is our primary aims. Lessons learned from the Washingtonian movement. Tradition 11. The public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need to always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and films. Public relations are important to AA. Good public relations saves lives. We seek publicity for AA principles, not AA members. The press has cooperated. Personal anonymity at the level, at public level, is the cornerstone of our public relations policy. Eleventh tradition is the constant reminder that personal ambition has no place in AA. Each member becomes an active, active guardian of our fellowship. Tradition 12. Anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions. Every mind must place principles before personalities. Spiritual substance of anonymity is sacrifice. Subordinating personal aims to a common good is the essence of all 12 traditions. Why AA could not remain a secret society. Principles come before personalities. 100% anonymity at the public level. Anonymity is real humanity. The 12 traditions, long form. Wait a minute. Those aren't the long form. No, you think you, you did it already? Um, yeah, I, my, my mistake. In back, it's longer. Longer? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Boy. Uh, 189. That's the long form. Oh, I think it said, see the long form. That's what it meant. This is actually the short form. 
Oh, really? Well, you know, uh, I'm Fernando Alcoholic. I think we go ahead and vote to read this at every meeting uh, since we're, and we can call it the Coast to Coast AA meeting. Uh, okay. And, and we'll, because you, you just rang a doorbell in my head that I need to go ahead and take the seven tradition and save it until when I get a chance I can, I can forward it. So let's go ahead and do the seven tradition. This is a, a meeting to keep our New York and our local offices surviving. I wouldn't skip a beat on my contribution. So I'm, I'm. Uh, this is going to represent my uh, my my giving, which is a dollar. Yeah, you I see. So here's here's my contribution, and I'll save it till it comes. <laughs> it's a symbol, the symbol that uh, that we're gonna keep our groups alive with with traditions. Yep. Oh, thank you. you. That's too much to read. I you don't. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think if we get volunteers individually, it'll be it'll be just as. Uh, it might be more important right now that because we're we're all over the place. You know, it might be more important. And look, you just did something as you're reading. This light went on. Uh, that uh, contributing for uh, you know for the program. Okay, thank you so much. We left off. We're going to be reading today, April 9th, the Freedom from King Alcohol. You can read it along or follow me. Listen to me. Let us not suppose even for an instance that we are not under constraint. Our former tyrant, King Alcohol, always stands ready again to clutch us to him. Therefore, freedom from alcohol is the great must that has to be achieved. Else we go mad or die, as Bill sees at page 134. When drinking, I lived in spiritual, emotional, and sometimes physical confinement. I had constructed my prison with bars of self-will and self-indulgence, from which I could not escape. Occasionally, dry spells that seemed to promise freedom would turn out to be little more than hopes of a reprieve. True escape required a willingness to follow whatever right actions were needed to turn the clock. With the willingness and action, both the lock and the bars themselves opened for me. Continual willingness and action keeps me free in a kind of extended daily probation <laughs> that never need it ended. The need never ended. True escape requires a willingness to follow whatever right actions were needed to turn the clock. I'm Fernando. I am alcoholic. And a couple of things sprung up is my, my willingness to pray and ask for, for strength to spring forward. Um, there was no willingness in me when I came to AA. So now prayer gives me the inspiration to will myself and stay in prayer and asking for strength to do the right action. And, th and that's to pick up the book and stick my nose in it. And that's, you know, because it assures, it gives me, it makes me wholesome, the words. It, to contact another alcoholic, and, and I was feeling so good yesterday, I felt like I had a good meal. <laughs> it 
in having having this coast to coast meeting. The other thing I like about it is the uh, the king alcohol is similar to what we learned from the viruses that a virus is always there and it's dormant and it's waiting for you to to let your guard down. It's there for a reason. I don't know what reason it is, but maybe when, uh, but. We know what the medical field tells us that the virus is dormant, just hanging around. It doesn't have any life itself when it's in, the, it's in our body. But when the cell opens up with lack of nutrition, lack of prayer, lack of rest, uh, halt, right? Too tired, too lonely, too pessimistic. Then the virus has a chance to add its uh, pessimism into us. So that's one of the, uh, the that rang a, a cow's bell to me in my head. I'm Fernando Alcoholic. Anybody else like to comment on this today? I'm John Alcoholic. Hi, John. When you were talking about the virus, I, I was thinking, too, the virus is spread by my alcoholic behavior. I spread, spread my alcoholism by the way I act. Act Although sometimes, and I really don't have the alcoholic behavior, because when I was about six months in AA, I became a dry drunk. I was miserable. Mm. Worse than I ever was, I think, when I was drinking. Wow. I wasn't talking to many people, hardly talking to my sponsor. I made a geographic move over here to where I'm at, and it's the best one I ever made. I ended up in a treatment center for depression and also, but the miracle is I didn't drink. Mm. The way that I was acting and being, it was uh, it's just a miracle. So I, I know there was a power greater than me that helped me stop uh, drinking. And the other thing was the first time I came in, it was about four months before I came in in 95. It was um, the word escape. That's, to me, that's why I came to AA first, was to escape myself, to escape what was going on. You know, people mention drinking and how much you drink, and I don't even know why I thought that that may have been the reprieve for me, so I can go back and start drinking and I'll be okay. It's amazing how those words fit, no matter where it is. So, uh, I'm grateful to be here. And I felt better, too, I had a couple of bad days. My heart uh, heart rate's been going. It hit 35 at the time, really low. So I got calls into the doctors. That's why I mentioned about the doctors. Mm. But I feel better today. And after the meeting, I was thinking, wow, I feel a lot better. <laughs> They're just like what you said. It was amazing. <laughs> yep. I'm John. I'm an alcoholic. Thank you very much, John. Uh and with that, we can go ahead and move over to our today's reading. We left off, we're reading the 12 and 12, uh, step 11. We, uh, I think we read three paragraphs. And then, so what we're going to do the is, is do a paragraph at a time and comment. Okay? And because there's so much into it. So we'll go ahead and start off. I'll start off, I think. Let's see, i got to figure out where I left off. I think we left off at, uh, Surely there could be no justice in this scheme of things, and therefore no God at all. 
Um, what page is that? That's page 97. Surely? Yeah, I think it's, it's where sometimes we took a slightly different tack. I, oh, okay, got it, got it. Sure, we said to ourselves, the, the hen probably did come before the egg. No doubt the universe had a first cause of some sort. The God of the atom may be hot and cold by turns, but certainly there wasn't enough evidence of a God who knew or cared about human beings. We like AA all right, and we're quick to say that it had done miracles, but we recoil from meditation and prayer as obstinately as the scientist who refused to perform a certain experiment lest it prove his pet theory wrong. Of course, we finally did experiment, and when unexpected results follow, we felt different. In fact, we knew different. And so, we were sold on meditation and prayer, and that, we have found, can happen to anybody who tries. It has been well said that almost the only scoffer at prayer are those who never tried it enough. Amen. Would you like to comment on that, John? Sure, John Alcoholic. John? Um, we're in meditation. I still, meditation for me, I don't sit around and cross my legs and try not to think. Right now, for now, meditation to me is when I'm reading. Because mm -hmm. it takes my mind off of everything else. Um, once in a while, I'll meditate for five minutes or something, but I... I haven't got totally into that. In prayer, yes. I think you mentioned it yesterday. In the 11th step in the big book, it says, if you don't want to pray, just keep praying until you want to pray. Because um, the last couple of days have been like that. I wanted to pray, but I just mentally really wasn't, I wasn't there. Um, I feel a lot better today. And then... Uh, the thing with prayer and meditation, too, is I have to get out of my head when I pray and meditate that the answer I'm getting is really not for me. You know, sometimes it's sort of separating, is that God or me speak? And uh, I had a friend, a, a recovering priest years ago, Father Tom, and he used to say, when the bellyometer is uncomfortable, then there's something wrong. Otherwise, when you're uncomfortable and you're thinking about something, and there's something going on that I have to look at. And the last thing, just the word soul, the fourth line from the bottom on the right. And so we were sold on meditation and prayer. Um, I never been, I, it's either in here somewhere in my big book that I'd wrote, and one sponsor told me that when I was sold, was when I came to believe that a power greater than me also returned me to sanity. Because I was told that this is going to work. And, and again, it's funny how one word triggers off stuff. You know, so that's enough out of me. Thanks. Thank you, John. I'm Fernando Alcoholic. Wow. Mm -hmm. Man, uh, well, very quickly, I wanted to say that you know, in math, in math, when you calculate something and you have a, it usually would happen a lot to me that I would end up with the wrong number. 
uh, because I had a, a problem here. You know, bat, I did a subtract, multiply, or something, and then later on, everything was wrong because of that foundation, correct? And right here, it says right here that the, uh, the scientist, uh, what is that word he used, obstinately, who refuses to perform a certain experiment unless he proves, what's his bet theory? That he had calculated that sum and sum equals such, that if you put this element and this element and that, it will cure this. That was his, that he had already had a patent it. He's already making money on it. And there comes another scientist that do the same experience with the same truth, the same elements. <clears throat> you know, so much phosphorus, so much of this, so much of that. We put them together. We heat them up. They did the same. That's why the medical field is just an amazing that if someone says something, everybody's going to prove that if it's true because everybody has the same elements, the same raw materials to work for to put together that and come to the same conclusions. That's where you get the Nobel prizes or something on medicine and, and people find that's what's happening right now. These guys are going to create the formula, the antibiotics, the, the medicine, and then they're going to send it all over the world and everybody's going to produce it because this is how you do it. <laughs> and the same thing happens in the spiritual realm. We have the truth and we have the error and the experience of doing so much error and being beaten so much with alcohol that now, instead of alcohol, we add words. We, we add uh, compassion. We add uh, uh, spiritual, life-giving words that when we leave, I don't have to run to the bottle anymore for a sense of well, well-being. I, I, I got weight. Like in the doctor's opinion, it says it must have depth and weight. And that's one of the things that just amazes me about this program, that uh, I'm not bored. You know, God, like when you read Tradition 2, I went back and I went over and it says, uh, for the ultimate something, <laughs> for the ultimate authority, the ultimate authority. And what's the ultimate authority? The ultimate authority is truth, the right thing. <laughs> so, you know, they do the right thing and get it into my thick head that drinking and brawling, I wouldn't last. That was my calculations on my own laboratory. I was at 25 years old or so when I came to AA. I wasn't going to last, John, you know. I was going down, I came in bleeding, I came tattooed, in depth, cold, naked, hungry, lonely, tired, and AA came, kept me a cup of coffee, and they stapled me to the wall. Bah, 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 bah. And then they, they, they put some cotton in my mouth, <laughs> and then they spoon-fed me a little AA at a time. Oh, that's too much, that's too much. So they, they brought me back to life, you know, and I, I don't think I, I remember getting up on the pulpit in East L.A. and Los Amigos, but I, I don't think, I don't, I think I was just pride and ego that I was up there, you know, it was just probably saying something, you know, I'm really interesting or something, but uh, just like Bill W., <laughs> when he was out up there drunk, 
trying to get everybody to sing or something when he first started. Uh, I guess that's all I got for that paragraph. And uh, thanks. I have one quick comment. John yes. Hi, John. The part you read about obstinacy, refused to perform, and so on. What that reminds me of, and I'd never thought of it before, is Herbert Spencer, contempt prior to investigation. Okay. It's like here it is. Let's just use. Did it. Um. Uh, yeah, we can go ahead. Well, right on time. Yes, you're reading. Next, next paragraph. Those of us who have come to make regular use of prayer would no more do it without than we would refuse air, food, or sunshine. And for the same reason, when we refuse air, light, or food, and the body suffers, and when we turn away meditation and prayer, we likewise deprive our minds and our emotions and our intuitions of vitally needed support. As the body can fail its purpose for lack of nourishment, we, so can the soul. We all need the light of God's reality, the nourishment of his strength, and the atmosphere of his grace. To an amazing extent, the facts of AA life conform confirm his angel's truth. Anybody who wants to speak out there, Wow, I'm Fernando Alcoholic. Uh, this is, uh, you know, when I, I can't, like I said when I first came in, I noticed that I was a void of air, food, or sunshine. I was, uh, I was void of human contact and being able to talk to people about my feelings. That was, that came way later. Um, I was barely living in a garage. And I had, and I was barely hanging on to my work. So when I, I, I was, uh, you know, like the scripture says, lonely, tired, sick. I was sick, and you, you gave me something to drink. You know, you gave me, you gave me some advice. You know, you, you had gave me a place where I can come in out of the cold. Uh, you gave me, you gave me uh, unearned friendship, unearned respect, uh, unearned. Um, uh, you know, uh, admitting, and you admitted me, admitted me in your program. So everything was just kind of a nourishment of his strength, atmosphere of his grace, to an amazing extent, the fact that AA life confirms this ageless truth. And now, that was created here yesterday, 24 hours ago, in this meeting that I have, you know, I left feeling good about Fernando, you know, and I and I look forward for the next meeting. So that in itself is like when I first discovered alcohol. Oh, I can't wait to give me a tall boy, a Budweiser, you know, or, you know, as a young kid. And it was just had a incredible. It did his magic, but I, you know. And that's all I got to say about that. Thank you. Um, you know, I told you when we were done too, I felt good about myself, but also about our friendship. You know, strengthening a friendship mm -hmm. used to be something happened and it's like, ah, the heck with it. I'll move on to whoever. And you mentioned about uh, contact and, and with people. And that's 
right now what we're doing. We can't, you shouldn't go really contact, you know, and we're sort of living in that, that state right now, but dealing with, it. you know, the solution is, is right here. It's everywhere. And one last thing, it says the nourishment of his strength on the top of page 98. Um, the word grace. Remember, I asked my sponsor, and I said, I'm stumped. I have no idea what grace is. And he gave me a very simple definition for me. He called it spiritual fuel. And I thought, wow, that's just, it's so simple. You know, I don't have to get in the books and look up grace and do all that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. It, I, have, well, I have a question for you. Yes, sir. You know, I hear people say, well, I have more than I deserve. I don't know. That just doesn't sound right. Um, does God say, well, you don't deserve it? I, I, I'm confused by that. Hang on, Zeb. I'm, uh, I'm on the other line. Call back in the Zoom, please. Hey, John. Oh, yeah, I thought I had every device, you know, that it should have, the call shouldn't have went through. One of the guys from Sacramento tried to call, and I thought I can switch over and tell him to call back on the on Zoom, and but I lost everything. Okay. Well, we, we go, we're going 40 minutes, right? Yes, yes. We're about five minutes left. Let's go ahead. And uh, what was the question again? Okay. Um, the thing I was this. People say, and I've always heard this, always when I'm in recovery. Uh-huh. And they say, well, I got more than I deserve. I mean, can I see God saying, well, no, you're doing a good job. You're really changed your life, but you really don't deserve anything. I Explain that to me unless I'm misinterpreting it. You, I think you're right. There might be a, a, a set of, of uh, playing God there by saying that statement. <laughs> yeah. If you really think about it, you know, you, we're, we're uh, I'm the destiny of my own ship type of thing. I got more than I deserve. Uh, yeah, it's like, why wouldn't I deserve it? Right, because it says our common welfare, and God dictates the common welfare. Our, you know, our little 
common welfare is not what God and reportedly gives us dreams. His common welfare is for us to have, you know, a, a, an abundant life. And that means um, plenty, plenty of everything, health, friends, contact with him. Uh, you're right. You know, we got to watch out for a lot of things that people say. And a lot of, I got more than I deserve. You're right. Okay, I'm looking up the definition of deserve. Okay. It is do something or have show qualities worthy of reward or punishment. So it's the opposite of what they, the referred deserves a pat on the back for this bravery or whatever. Some examples. So the definition is just the opposite. Yes, yes. Oh, man. Um, the more I read it, the more a uh, can of worms starts to open up. You know, I said first is, is the pride of uh, being your own God, dictating and uh, putting yourself in a box. But then the other thing says, when you, when you looked up that definition, my lightning speed mind came up with a definition by itself. Get this. Jesus, well, my higher power came as a servant. My higher power is Jesus. He came, he came to serve. And, and guess what? He wants to serve me. And my problem is accepting the service work. That's my problem. I'm here to receive so I can serve others when the, when the opportunity comes. If I wasn't able to receive this $1,000 phone that my wife suggested, I get it. You know, I go, hey, I'll do with a, you know, a $100 phone. And, uh, you know, which convinced me to, to invest in it. So you can do two things. You can actually talk and, and swim in the Internet and do calculations. So she has closed escrows on this and taken care of law situations and you know, it's like it's like a miniature computer carrying around with us. Uh, and at first, it was hard to deserve that beautiful thing, right? <laughs> My, yeah, right. When I, did I get this? <laughs> yeah, and and I think it's it's you're right. I think we we need to see. Uh, I get more. I got more than I deserve. I. I no, that's not letting go and let God, huh? No, not really. And I mean, okay, if I, like, we're doing this, we're going to meetings, we're helping others, praying and everything, so I don't deserve to stay sober? Wait a minute. <laughs> What's going on here? Wow, yeah, yeah. It just doesn't make sense to me. And that's beautiful. We, we are our own uh, individual Per, person with gifts with gifts and, and your gift may be that hey i go along with you but it's not producing happiness and joy this this, this on this this kind of thinking or, or this meeting or, or or my association with you it has to be an, an uh it has to be a growth in there that we're <laughs> did you ever listen to marion williamson no, Miriam Williamson? Yeah, she does the um, Course in Miracles. 
I mean, years ago when she started in the 80s, and she, she as I understand, is a recovering person also. Miriam? I listened to her religiously, and she said something once. She said, we are perfect, just the way God created us, mm. with our defects, with our assets, with our personalities. So in that respect, we are perfect. It's just that that perfectionism sort of went by the wayside. By, by, state, by statements like this one, I got more than I deserve. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, so I have one other person to ask you. How about Father Leo Booth? Yeah, yeah, the, the father with the collar on the, from the 60s or the 70s. Yeah, when I came in, I listened to him every day. I had cassettes back then. Wow. And I gave a bunch of cassettes to, like, Salvation Army, and they were in there. Mm -hmm. So was Marion Williamson. And I've tried to get the CDs of Father Leo. Um, and I only I found one. It's a four-set because he, he and they don't do it anymore. I guess I've tried to contact the office. Mm -hmm. And um, he just he just he can make you be happy, not make you, but you can be happy, and then all of a sudden, just take you right down. And he has such a sense of humor. Yeah, that's what I like about him. He does. Yeah, one of my um, my first got real real counselors in AA who was also in AA. And we became very good friends. Spence, unfortunately, he's passed away. He was a, a friend of Father Leo. And he got him to sign a book for me, something to do with spirituality. And I'll be darned, when I went to clean out everything, I wasn't even thinking. I just got rid of stuff. Um, now that I'm thinking about it. But I like to listen to him. He, he's spoken over here before. Wow, wow, but he's, he's passed away too, Father, right? No, I don't think so. Really? Father Leo Booth. Father Leo Booth, huh? I'm writing these. He has a center down in Los Angeles. Oh, uh, Leo Booth. Isn't that the one that talks about love a lot? Yeah, love and, and actually laughter. He doesn't say laughter. Oh, laughter. Just, you know, he wrote a book called The God Game. The God Game. Did you ever read it? Uh, no, but I have read. I may have books on him. I may even have it. I got a whole bunch of books that uh, I, I think I have a book on him, Leo Booth. I, I remember I followed him for a while. You know, this is, this is the thing. The book was about the guilt that religion can bring up. And for me, it was there. I mm. was raised Catholic and there was a lot of guilt. Now, maybe not everybody has that, but Anyway, he was talking about, he, he was talking about, um, about uh, men. Uh -huh. uh, this word, I don't know how loud your speaker is, but he said, yeah, we were told when we masturbate, we'll go blind. And then he says, <laughs> oh, that's why my teachers wore glasses. <laughs> Stuff like that. Yeah. And, uh, he puts a different twist to 
years ago things that I may have been taught or whatever. You know, that's why uh, when we, we're, we're coming out of this craziness, uh, Emila Bombeck, you know, would write and humorous things. And the book we get attracted to is the uh, is that kind of humor. You know, I, I love that that kind of humor, that laughter. Uh, what was Mir Miriam William is called? Was Marianne Marianne Williamson. Oh, Mary Mary Ann Williamson. Williamson William with a son on the end. It's Mary Ann. She really gave some had some good talks, and she was running for president this year. Oh my goodness! You got to be kidding, really. No, but she was pretty far out. She said. When a hurricane's coming, we can actually will it to go away. So when she said that, I said, boy, you've really gone out now. <laughs> well, she's probably talking to the virus right now, and somebody's keeping it down from growing so much. Because, you know, we're... Yeah, we, that way. Hey, if, it, if that works, then that's fine. Yeah, we... Yeah, right yeah, I speak to... Uh, I speak to money to come, and money comes... <laughs> Yeah, or sometimes it just comes from nowhere. Like I got worked on at Office Depot a few years ago. They redid some stuff on my computer. Uh huh. And they said I had malwares and whatever. So I had them take it off. And I got a check, oh, a month or two ago for $210 because they said the company was doing, doing that was frauding everybody. Wow. I didn't even know what was going on. <laughs> wow, beautiful! That was that was great. That was great. Yeah, I'll look her up, Marianne Wilson. But she did something a while about twenty years ago. You say? Well, I th I don't I think she's still out there, not doing as much. But this was in uh, I think her tapes were from the eighties. I came in in ninety five, and that's when I started listening to her. Um, at the time, they were all cassettes. But what she did was a course of miracles. Oh, oh. well, you know, very, very spiritual person. Well, if you want to brush up, everything's on every. People are putting all their material up on YouTube for free. It's kind of like a public library, and and she's there. Uh, I'll I'll type it in later, and when I'm walk doing stuff, I'll put it on my headphones and listen to. I think I heard of it before. I think we're familiar with it. It just sounds real familiar. Course of Miracles. And I'll look up Father Booth. And uh, you see, that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm putting up my favorite books up in the, uh, in the Internet so other people can enjoy them. And oh, that's right. Uh, Anchor.com? Yeah. Did I send that to you, by the way? No, I can get it, though. I just remembered what you said. Oh, yeah, yeah. Then... Uh, Go ahead and sign up. You can sign up with your email really easy. And then you can put this material that you, we just, Marianne Willensim, and anything you have on Leo Booth. And that way I don't have to go look for it. I can just tap into your library. Your oh, okay. I'll take a look at it. Yeah, any, any of your favorite books that you want, you know, the younger generation A-ers that are coming along to anybody. All right. Well, let's go ahead and close our meeting because it's it's a uh, we want to it's going to be interesting when we get two or three more guys. It's going to be like whoa, where the time's going to fly, huh? <laughs> yeah, well, I got a question for you too. Man. Yeah, yes, sir. 
what if somebody new comes on? I mean, really pretty new, a week or something. Somebody knows them, and they said, "What?" I know some meetings go back to the first step, but I don't know if that's the right thing. I'm just throwing it out there in case it happens. Yeah, it's funny you should say that. I, I, I listened to a guy yesterday, and I'll send them to you. It was really interesting. I think his name is Russell or something. I'll send you the clip. You can hear the whole thing. And he said exactly the same thing, that question. And he says, you know what I found out? The, the newcomers, they enjoy catching up quickly with all the years. They, they can, their subconscious mind can figure out where, where we're at and what we're talking about, where we came from. We don't have to go back to basics uh, when a newcomer comes in. He goes. And we got a sponsor. Yeah, uh, I do have one right now that I'm, I'm having him uh, uh, look at. He, I sent him that clip. I don't know if I sent it to you. Uh, the Lost Weekend. I got the video here. Oh, okay. It's free right now on Arch Archive or something like that. And I. Anyway, I sent it to him. I told him, give me a book report, and I'll sign your court card. So this is a lot more work than just going to a meeting for his, uh, for his court signatures. But he's already sent me one book report on, on uh, Prison to Praise movie. The prison is free on YouTube and about thanking God for all. So anyway, I have one guy, but, and I got a couple of two or three other guys. They, they're not communicating. They're probably out. You know, hopefully they're not drinking. But you're right. We'll just have to deal with it when it comes. But I think we should just not miss the beat. Keep our studying going. Let them listen. And let them participate with what they got, what they get. And that'll be it. Yeah, and they can go back if they want to and catch, and catch up. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. Okay. You know, you explained the traditions really good. And, and we, if we can get the traditions in their heart, they already have the commitment. You know, and the, the depth and weight of the information will keep them, and they'll come back for another meal, we hope. Mm -hmm. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I collected $1 on my side, and I'll get that to the central office. And uh, <laughs> and with that, uh, let's go ahead and close with a serenity prayer. Or is, okay. Or, or, or would you like a, a prayer, the Our Father, John? Well, no, you know what I'd like to do is the 11-step prayer. Oh, okay. We got it right here. Page, uh... Oh, page 99. Okay, I'll go, can I go ahead and read it w along with you? Sure. No problem. Okay. That's, that's, that will be a tradition, too, that we can do. We, we, okay. Ready? Lord, make me a channel of thy peace, that with their hatred I may bring love, that where there is wrong I may bring the spirit of forgiveness, that where there is discord I may bring harmony, that where are error I may bring truth, that where there is doubt I may bring faith. That where there is despair, I may bring hope. That where there are shadows, I may bring light. That where is sadness, I may bring joy. Lord, grant that I may seek rather to comfort 
and to be comforted, to understand, then to be understood, to love, then to be loved, for it is by self-forgetting that one finds, it is by forgiving that one is forgiven, it is by dying that one awakens to eternal life. Amen. Amen is right. Keep coming back. It works if it work it. <laughs> you got it. And that, that last topic for another time is forgiveness of yourself. Uh, we'll talk about it another time. Okay. That's wonderful. I'll write, okay. I'll write that okay. down, and we'll talk to you. To, hopefully, we'll see you tomorrow. God willing. Oh, yeah. It's my plan. All right. I'll see you okay. there. Bye-bye, John. Bye. All right. All right, let's go ahead and get this meeting started. Coast to coast, Fernando Alcoholic. Welcome to uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. Let us open this meeting with a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. All right, now, Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting to our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober to help the other colleagues achieve sobriety. Growing up, April the 10th, Daily Reflections, the essence of all growth is a willingness to change for the better and then an unremitting willingness to shoulder whatever responsibility this entails. As Bill sees it, page 115. Okay, we're going to read it in context right here. Here's page 115, uh, as Bill sees it. And it says, uh, on the top of it, it says, Let us never fear needed change. Certainly, we have to discriminate between changes for worse and changes for better. But once a need becomes clearly apparent in an individual, in a group, or in AA as a whole, it has long since been found out that we cannot stand still and look the other way. Again, the essence of all growth is a willingness to change for the better and then an unremitting willingness to shoulder whatever responsibility this entails. And the reading for the day is, Sometimes when I become willing to do what I should have been doing all along, I want praise and recognition. I don't realize that the more I'm willing to act differently, the more exciting my life is. The more I am willing to help others, the more rewards I receive. That's what practicing the principle means to me. Finding benefits for me are in the willingness to do the actions, not to get immediate results. Being a little kinder, a little slower to anger, a little more loving makes my life better day by day. Man, the alcoholic. Um, willingness to be of service and then doing too much and getting burned out. Not having enough energy to go from meeting to meeting is usually my, was probably my dilemma. And now recently, I've been wanting to put 
read books on online so people in prison, my prison ministry, people can listen to it. And there's about 100 people that are listening to it in, in the last couple of months. Total 400 that have come and gone and listened to the prison um, Spanish. So that's really good. So what I'm doing now is I'm translating and reading a lot of Spanish and my broken Spanish, but I'm getting the job done. So I have to say I can do it. You know, there's there's some books that are extremely, and I, I can do it, I can do it, I can change, I can, I can change, I can become a good reader, I can become a good orator, alterator, whatever, and make it for another person, somebody out there, somebody out there that's in prison. You know, I had very, actually no prison time myself, just a little bit of road camp when I was an adult, a little bit of jail, you know, from my, actually, it was, even, it was not even for drinking. It was for not paying my bills and uh, for, for theft, for stealing the keys from the local telephone company. And, and I ended up with a bunch of quarters and nickels and dimes. And we returned the keys. Haha, <laughs> so that's pretty nice, huh? They kept asking for them on the daily newspaper. And I got arrested thrown three, di three days in jail, I went before the judge, and uh, they gave me a $110 fine. I mean, just so easily to have mercy in these United States of America. They didn't cut my, any of my fingers off. I went to uh, Vietnam uh, to smuggle some Bibles in there, you know, and sure enough, I met some guys with some missing fingers, you know, because if you carry a Bible or you, you try to sneak it from border to border or, or you're a DUI, they, they chop your finger off. How about that? All right, now, thank you very much. We're going to try some uh, YouTube recordings so, so we can get this thing on the way. Anyway, let's go ahead and uh, finish this meeting with a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Amen. Have a great day. I get so nervous when I have to speak. My children said, Dad, are you nervous? I said, of course I'm nervous. He said, well, you don't look like you're nervous at church on Sunday. It says, because I'm trained not to look nervous when I'm at church on Sunday. But I am nervous. I'm also Hollis Dodge, and I am an alcoholic. And I'm going to follow the leaders. My sobriety date is the 1st of November, 1977. And I don't think I'd be caught sober without a sponsor. That's not to say I like him. Not say he's a good sponsor. But I'm his sponsor too. And our mutual sponsor died. And he told the two of us that we were the two commonest human beings he ever met. And neither one of us deserved a good sponsor. So I am sober. 
30 years, going on 31. I came into Alcoholics Anonymous the year after the third edition was printed, and I stuck around for seven years after the fourth edition has been printed. And I am living proof that a person can be sober for a good long while and still not amount to a damn thing. <laughs> I'd like to offer an introductory apology. I, I have notes here tonight. I have notes because I'm getting old. I've been an AA for half my life. And like many old men, and particularly old authors, there's not a lot of lead left in the pencil, but he'll scribble all night. So what you will hear tonight must be a big book lead. It's because I believe in the big book. It's because the big book has been a part of my daily prayer and meditation almost from the time I came into this program. Omar and I were talking about it before earlier this evening, and I mentioned to him that for the first five years that I was in the program, I had read the book like I read every other textbook when I was in college. And I figured that I had gotten the main points. But five years out, the bottom dropped out for me, and I did not get drunk, but I did get serious about the big book. And I would venture, this, this is, a, I don't know what number book this is. This cover here has kept them alive a lot longer than they normally would. But I've worn out a good many big books. I got them all at home, yet they all got all kinds of notes in them. And I carefully transcribed the notes from the last one into this one. And, and, and I conclude that a person whose big book is coming apart probably is not. <laughs> and I don't have much to tell you that comes very far from the big book, which is why I want to stay close to notes. Because I'm not an original thinker. All my original thinking earned me a place in these rooms. It wasn't until I got in here and began living as other people had lived and talking as other people had talked and copying the behavior of good solid AAs that I began to improve as a human being and to stay sober. In fact, I've heard it said you can always smell an independent thinker in an AA room. <laughs> I want to say this, that the book Alcoholics Anonymous is a spiritual solution to a medical and mental problem. And it suggests a philosophy by which you and I may live a sane and productive life. The big book is deeply spiritual. It is not denominational, it is not pretentious, and it is not that mysterious. But it does address confounding issues in the lives of men and women it does over time strip us of our destructive egos, and it will, if we will permit it, launch us into a fourth dimension of the spirit. Bill Wilson said very clearly, and I'm going to give you chapter and verse because it's going to be taped, and 
You may wish to go back and look for the sources yourselves and expand your own reading. Bill Wilson said, of necessity, there will have to be discussion of matters medical, psychiatric, social, and religious. This shows up on page 19. There is a solution. Elsewhere, Bill says this, we have found nothing incompatible between a powerful spiritual experience and a life of sane and happy usefulness. And that's from the family afterward, page 130. So from the big book, what I wish to do is in some ways synchronize it with my experience to outline for you the anatomy of our ailment. Our ailment is physical, it is mental, and it is spiritual. Dr. Silkworth in the doctor's opinion, those Roman numeral 26, said this, the body of the alcoholic is abnormal. And that was something that was very good news to me when I came to AA. I know that everything else about me was abnormal, but I was glad to know that there was something I could do about that abnormality. My drinking began when I was quite young. I was exposed to alcohol quite young. There is some suggestion in my family that my dad was an alcoholic. I was really pleased to hear that dad may have been an alcoholic because there's usually a family connection. And prior to some fairly clear evidence that my father's drinking was way out of hand, given to me by his youngest sister many years after I was in AA and dad was dead. I had to blame it on my grandfather Biggs, who was my mother's father. And he had, been, he had run off and left the family in 1929, just as the Depression hit. And the old bastard was blamed for everything else that went wrong in the family. <laughs> so I had to take on faith that maybe it was old Ben Bates. But I think it was a lot closer. It was in my own house, and I was raised in it. And I admired and loved the person who did that drinking. It was my dad. I loved and admired the man, and I wanted to do what Dad did, and I sure did. My old man could drink beer all day and most of the night because he understood it, and he knew the effect, and he could gauge it. But if my dad got into hard liquor, he had to be at least part Native American because the man went berserk. <laughs> And very interesting and crazy things happened, and sometimes violent things and sometimes terrifying things. He was a tormented person, and it was whiskey that brought it out in him. I always thought that drinking was a sign of strength, because I felt very weak without a drink. And by the time I was in high school, alcohol was a major player in my social life. Years ago, I gave a talk in Winnipeg, and I went out to dinner with the fellow who was my host and his girlfriend. And we were sitting in this restaurant in Winnipeg, and she said, I can't understand how you fellas loved booze so much. I drink two drinks, and the whole world goes like this. And it hit me right then. I said, Sylvia, that's the ticket. For you, a couple of drinks made you go like this. Gary, your boyfriend and I, we were always like this, and a couple of drinks brought us back to this. 
I evidenced all of the signs of alcoholism. I craved a drink before I knew what a compulsion was. I was drawn to alcohol as a social lubricant, and to the extent that it was such a lubricant for me that I completely came unglued many, many times. I woke up in places I wasn't even tired. Sometimes not alone. And although we had not been properly introduced, a quick look under the quilt let us know that we had at least become casually acquainted. I have made a private and a public spectacle of myself due to my drinking. I experienced in the later years that compulsion that says that unless I have a drink, I'm coming apart. That a drink will solve this. A drink will make victory that much greater. It will make failure that much more survivable. It will make me function like a normal human being when I knew I was not a normal human being. And it also then became a necessity. And by the time I came to AA at age 30, I was drinking the equivalent of a fifth a day. And that was social drinking. Then sometimes I'd get down to some serious drinking. But I don't remember many of those because I also experienced blackouts. I experienced things that perhaps I would have been better could I have forgotten. But my blackouts weren't the ones that took away the guilt, the shame, the remorse, the sense of what were you thinking? It didn't do any of those things for me. I experienced withdrawals. And I never tried to experience withdrawals because I stayed about half in the bag all of the time. But when I didn't drink, strange things began to occur to my body. I won't tell you about all of them, but some of them affected from here up and others affected from here down. <laughs> and withdrawal for me was not a pleasant experience, so I experienced as little of it as I could. That explains to some extent the physical malady that I have, and all of us have that physical malady. Our symptoms may be a diff bit different. You may have drank more than I did. You may have drank longer than I did. You may have mixed your drinking with other substances, which changes everything. What once was just a social drink now becomes a crusade. I did mess with some of that stuff in, back in the early 70s, but it was a felony to be caught in possession of most of it. And by that time, I had been ordained to the ministry, and it really would be a little tacky to be written up So I quit doing that stuff, and I never felt as though it qualified me for membership in any of the other 12-step groups. Let me go on to another thing that Dr. Silkworth said. He said that we're outright mental defectives. Now, isn't that a terrible thing to call us? Outright mental defectives. And Silkworth said that in the doctor's opinion, Roman numeral 26. He spoke about that strange mental twist that precedes the first drink. 
I had very few strange mental twists, at least that I could see, because as I said, I was a regular drinker. So I, the twist had happened for years ago, and I just maintained life within that twist. I could always find a reason for a drink. I got one time I, a new Episcopal priest had moved to town, and I was working with the deaf. And this fellow was the vicar for the deaf in that area as well, and I thought I ought to meet him socially. So we arranged on the telephone to meet at a downtown restaurant. And I thought maybe I'd better get down there a little before he did in order to have a little nip. And I did. Well, we thought that was such a great experience that we decided to meet regularly on that day of the week. So I decided to come a little early the next week. Well, so did he. So the next week I came 15 minutes early. And I had a nip. Then I, he came, and I had another nip, and then we had a couple more nips. I didn't want him to know how much I was drinking, so the next week he shows up half an hour early. By the time we were done, we said, we either have to drink openly or come here for breakfast. <laughs> it was also for me a, a persistent preoccupation. You know, that preoccupation with booze is still with me today. I don't know about you, but the preoccupation with booze is still with me 30 years later. I will love nothing more than to go in the ABC store. The smell of a packaged liquor store is better than a brand new car. I can smell it. I can taste the way the air is. I can see the glittering of those labels. I can see the promise in those amber bottles. It is as important to me today as it was the day I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had better keep that clear in my mind. Now, I'm married to a woman who does have a nip from time to time. She can have a nip from time to time. She won't drive after she's had a nip from time to time. Hell, I drove better drunk than I drive sober. <laughs> or at least I thought I did. <laughs> Dr. Bob mentioned this very clearly in his talk in 1948 in Detroit. He said that the thought of a drink comes to him every now and then. And even in his story in the big book, he said that the obsession to drink did not leave him for two and a half years. Now, I'm not talking about an obsession to drink, though I know what that is. This is a persistent love for booze. Who among you, if a friend comes to your home and brings a pint with them for a little nip, can think to pour it out after they've left? Can you do that? I had a pint of brandy under my kitchen sink for years just in case somebody came by who needed a little shot of brandy. It wasn't me. I, did, I knew better than to drink it. But to me, that stuff was like gold. You don't pour booze out unless somebody's been spitting in it. I gave booze away as gifts for many years to people who didn't even drink because I still held it in such respect. I do hold booze in respect today as much as I would a copperhead in my hip pocket. And that preoccupation and awareness of booze is still with me today. I was at a Passover supper with some neighbors of mine. I'd been a guest at their home for 30 years. And they had something called Slivovitz. It's a plum brandy. 
and they brought out the most gorgeous little square bottle you ever saw with a little glass stopper on it. And they had these really pretty little crystal lead glasses about as big as an egg cup. And they poured in just a few teaspoons into each one of those. And then they ran it under their noses for a little while, took a little sip and winced and said, hey, that's good. <laughs> and I'm sitting there with him and one of them says, Dodge, you quit drinking too soon. And I said, no, I didn't. You guys are playing around with that stuff teaspoon at a time. <laughs> and if I decided to experiment with that slivovitz, I'd drink that bottle drier than a popcorn fart, throw it over my shoulder, and I'd be out the door. <laughs> it's still on my mind. And I go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous to keep it on my mind. We read about the hideous four horsemen. They show up on page 151 in A Vision for You. You know what they are. They're terror. Have you ever awakened in the morning with a grim suspicion of what you did the night before? And your boss was in the room. That's terror. Bewilderment. I was bewildered for decade and a half about booze. I did not know what the problem was. I only knew there was a problem. Frustration. Every single thing I did just seemed to turn to dirt and drop away from me, just like dandruff. Every good intention that I had seemed somehow to turn to dust in front of me. Great opportunities. One night I was to get $1,000 for a group of young deaf people that I was trying to get set up in a camp. And that night I ended up drunk and driving across to Country Club Greens because I got lost out there. And I never did make it to the banquet to get that $1,000. And it was my own fault. And that fourth horrible horseman is despair. I liken despair to the thoughts I had of suicide. And they were real thoughts of suicide. They were suicide with intent, with a plan, and a sincere desire to be out of this earth. I am no stranger to despair. So those hideous four horsemen of terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair, they are not a literary figure of speech at the end of Bill Wilson's pen. Here's one for you from the story section of the big book, Twice Gifted, page 471. Looking back now, the picture of my life before I got sober looks like a long series of unfinished matters. Missed opportunities, ruined friendships, frustrated ambitions, laziness, inability to get up and do what I needed to do, fear of making plans for certain that I would not be able to complete them. 
Dr. Silkworth also says this in Roman numeral 32. And though he came to scoff, he may yet remain to pray. And this is where the spiritual part of the program comes in, and it shapes many people in the program. Some say it's a religious program. Some clinical friends of mine say that it cannot possibly be a scientific program because you cannot prove, quantify, nor necessarily replicate the, the outcome of AA. But we do it every day. Although we came to scoff, he may yet remain to pray. You know where that came from? I found it. It came from Oliver Goldsmith, The Deserted Village, written in 1770. And here's the poem. At church, with meek and unaffected grace, his looks adorned the venerable place. Truth from his lips prevailed with double sway, and fools who came to scoff remained to pray. Well, that sounds like a religious poem, but if you consider the number of AA meetings that are held in church basements, it could describe every AA meeting you ever attended. That when you came in filled with those four horsemen chasing you through the door and they, you were saddled up and ready to ride and you met people who were happy about being sober and showed you a way you could get sober, although you came to scoff, you remained to pray. Bill Wilson says as well in We Agnostics, page 55, deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. He goes on to say what can happen to that fundamental idea of God, but he doesn't get away from it, and he doesn't let anybody else get away from it either. And I'm not a great one for thumping the Bible. I do that on a Sunday morning. But I want to tell you right now that if anyone tries to let you know that this is not a spiritual program, I'm afraid they're mistaken. You may be an atheist or an agnostic who stays sober in the midst of a program of spiritual principles, and you may do what you can to remove, or if you will, to make less unpalatable to you these concepts, and you're welcome to do so, for philosophy is the very way in which that is done. Philosophy is a way that takes the root idea and still makes it available to the person without faith until you run into guys like Kierkegaard. And Bill Wilson was like that, who said that we can walk far along the bridge of faith, but we must finally step ashore. And for those who enjoy long-term sobriety, it is usually those who have come far along the bridge of faith and one day make that cosmic leap. Bill Wilson probably borrowed that phrase deep down in every man, woman, and child from a spiritual book. Bill Wilson, I might add, and I say this with respect, was one of the most selective and successful plagiarizers I've ever seen. <laughs> the book from which he probably borrowed this phrase is one with which the Oxford Group's people of the 20s, 30s, and 40s were very familiar. It was Brown's This Believing World. And here's the quote. Religion may be an altogether primal instinct in the human race, something just as old and fundamental and innate as fear itself. Who knows? And Bill locked onto that. 
Because try as he might, it wasn't until he was at the bottom and he turned his will and his life over to the care of God as he understood him, he brought as much of himself as he could to the, as much of God as he understood, and he surrendered that, and at that point he was put in a position which was standing atop a great hill with a clean wind of the Spirit blowing through and through. And that's what Silkworth told us had to happen. A spiritual awakening. If you are an alcoholic, and if you are sober today, then the spiritual awakening is at work in you. The 12th step says something like this. Having had a spiritual awakening, they speak of it as if it were in the past tense. I like to put it in the present tense. That each day is a spiritual awakening when we wake up sober. Each day is an opportunity for us to turn our liabilities into assets because we realize that our liabilities may be the greatest asset we have. Elsewhere in the big book, Bill Wilson quotes Henry Ford, who said that our shortcomings and failures may be our greatest teachers. And Bill builds upon that by saying, these sometimes are our prime assets and very often our only assets is our failures. And the fourth edition of the book, the excellent story showed up in print. And as I grow older, the story gets more and more meaningful to me. It was entitled, A Late Start. And from page 542, the lady who wrote that story said this. During my fifth year, I realized that I had not succeeded in developing a spiritual depth in my program. I had not gone in search of the private growth that I saw in others. I watched for and found people who take the program with them as they live, work, and play in the real world. And I was so riveted by that paragraph because, as I said, in my fifth year, the bottom dropped out for me. And I stood at another one of a hundred turning points I've had in this program. And I knew that if I did not move forward and make progress, I would regress and perhaps return to drink. That fifth year for me was a true crossroads. I remember exactly where I was when it happened. I was opening the doors of the church of which I was pastor at that time. It was hot. I was pulling the windows open. And the words of an old hymn came to me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Melt me, mold me, fill me, use me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. I think that God opens up the windows of heaven itself for us at times. And a clear beam of the truth and a solution comes to us in a flash, but they are fleeting. And if we do not take advantage of them, we will miss them. And I believe that the higher power cares so much for us that there will be constant opportunities to grab that outstretched hand. And this one I did. I made an arrangement with a priest friend of mine who ran a retreat house and I worked step-by-step step as many of the steps of the AA program as I could in that week. 
I did it in order for the first time. And I realized then that those steps are sequential. If you try to do a fifth step before you've done one, two, three, and four, you're going to get a pretty weak fifth step. But if you work the first step and you realize that you are powerless, then you can deal with your insanity because you don't have to deal with it all by yourself anymore. You know that you're powerless. When you have realized that a power greater than yourself can restore you to sanity, then you're able to ask that higher power. Then you're able to take that personal inventory. Then you're able to share it with another human being. Then, 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 then. And having had a spiritual awakening, you carry the message. That's not to say that we don't carry it all the way through. But if you're looking for the depth of this program, it is in those 12 steps. I also believe in seeing the evidence of a spiritual program at work. And I've been a very, very fortunate man in that regard. I don't know why. But the God of my understanding has allowed me to be in the company of extraordinary men and women in this program. I've outlived a good many of them. They were tall oaks to me. And I was able to clamber high up in the branches to see to the next landmark in my life. I marked my sponsors as having been those people. And each one of those sponsors did something for me that no other human being could have done. My first sponsor is still alive, but we were transferred to different churches some years back. He's still alive. He lives in Florida. He's a wonderful, wonderful man. He's got 35 years of sobriety now. My second sponsor stopped going to the meetings, so I had to find another sponsor. My third sponsor was an old iron or an old coal miner from Pennsylvania who could hardly read, but he loved AA. And he taught me to love AA. And he was a humble man. My fourth AA sponsor was a man who believed not only in service, but in understanding of this program. And never have I seen a man who was better with a newcomer than Larry. He had been in treatment 17 times before he finally got this program. So he understood the newcomer, I think, as no human being ever did. And he was perhaps one of the most important people in my life at a certain time. Because when it was time for me to make some career changes and to leave the church in which I was a pastor at that time and take a job as, as a pastoral counselor in a treatment center, he was the one who told me, no, ministry is not just a vocation, but it's also a job. And you can go get another job. So go get a job in the hospital. It was also Larry who... When I met my wife at that hospital, <laughs> I said to him, do you think I've been sober long enough to get married? I was 14 years sober when I got married. And then I said to him, Larry, I've not been real good in some chapters of my life, and I think I ought to tell her, he said, she needs to know it all. So she does. Her statement to me was, well, I don't know that either one of us need to have been the first woman or the first man that either one of us have had, but let's see to it that we're the last. So we've had a faithful marriage for 16 years. 
We have those two children of mine. They're wandering around here someplace. I'm trying to keep them out of everybody's sight as long as possible this weekend. But if you see me in the company of a nine-year-old red-headed girl and a seven-year-old red-headed boy, I'm not their grandfather. <laughs> Sponsor I have now, I've already taken his inventory. <laughs> Choose your AA companions. That's what it's really getting down to. Choose your AA companions. In a room that you go through, there will be people in that room who will lead you on to the next landmark you need. Find those people. They're called winners. Stick with the winners. Bill Wilson says in A Vision for You, page 162, with an eye to selecting those who are willing and able to recover on a spiritual basis. I'm not saying a religious basis. I'm not that religious myself. But I say on a spiritual basis. That's a winner in my book. You look for certain qualities in those winners. And Bill Wilson talked about them. Well, no, Bill didn't, but Sylvia did in The Keys to the Kingdom on page 274. Listen to what she says about what you're looking for in a winner. Philosophy. Faith. A sense of humor. They could laugh at themselves. Clear-cut objectives. Appreciation and sympathetic understanding for their fellow man or women. Those are the things you're looking for in a winner. And a sponsor. These fellas all talked about having sponsors. I believe in sponsorship. These people required that I come to them and ask them to help me. I was not used to doing that. That's what I think the great gift of a sponsor is, is the humility to go up to another person who may not be as smart or as rich or as handsome or have beautiful hair and say, will you be my sponsor? And then risk them saying no. Now, I sponsor a good many people, and I like my sponsees. I call them pigeons. I like them, but I never buy a new pigeon until that person has done some certain things with me. We go through a period, I guess, of instruction and catechesis, if you will. And if at the end of that time, that individual thinks that I have the qualities that he wants, then I go along with him. But I want him to test drive me first. I knew, I knew all of my sponsors very well. I came to know them and I respected them. I loved them and I feared them. I think that is an important quality. I have made mistakes in sponsorship and it was for having cared too much about the wrong things. I got, I lost my objectivity. I think a sponsor is probably more of a confessor than a companion. Now, Dick Tony was one of my sponsors, a gent in AA. I go to meetings in a coat and a tie. I go to all meetings in a coat and a tie. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, I do everything else in a coat and a tie. But I don't think there's anything wrong with seeing AA as a special time. I don't think there's a thing wrong with respecting AA and wanting to bring the very best of you into that room. And if that's better than what you've got, then at least for God's sakes, wash up and put on some clean clothes. Because if you expect life to change, you got to start doing changing things. And AA deserves the best you've got because you may be the only AA big book some people ever get to read. Larry Cash and I stood at the turning point many a time. I remember so clearly when Larry and I talked about marriage and Wendy. I remember saying that I needed a little help, and I found it. I found it in the big book. It was Archie Trowbridge, the man who mastered fear, on page 257, said this. However, I must have felt deep down inside myself that living the selfish life of a bachelor was only half living. By living alone, you can pretty much eliminate grief from your life. But you also eliminate joy. Now, you, some of you probably picked the wrong person. I did not. But I picked this person when I was stone cold sober. I asked Larry, I said, Larry, do you think there's anything wrong with Wendy? You've been around her? His reply was, the only thing I see wrong with that good woman is her inordinate affection for you. <laughs> Larry was also my sponsor when I decided to go back to school. You know, some people get an HO train, some take up fly fishing. I took up education. I'd gone through four years of undergraduate and four years of postgraduate, and I was pretty well shot in the butt the whole time, and my transcripts show it. In my 40s, I decided to go back to school. So I signed up and I took a course in American history. Got a master's in American history from James Madison University in 1995. And my thesis was why Alcoholics Anonymous of need separated itself from the Oxford groups. And that gave me a terrific opportunity to move all over the country and to visit some of the people who were there when it all happened. I got transcripts, I've got interviews, I managed to put this thing and earn a degree at it. And it's been a great, great depth of the program for me. I got married in 1992, and I started working with our State Department of Rehabilitative Services. And after I'd been at that job for almost seven years, they came to me one day and said, you don't have the right education to keep this job. Well, Sarah Jane was six months old, and I was 52 years old. And I said, I can't go into retirement. But they gave me an opportunity to get a degree in counseling at state expense. So thank you, one and all. <laughs> I also became a family man through all of this. I'm a busy guy. While I was at, J at VCU to getting this degree, it was distance learning, which I might add is, seems like an easy way to get an education, but you better be ready to read a thousand pages a week if you're going to take a distance course over the computer. 
And Johnny, my second one, had been born about that time and was a bit on the colicky side. And his mother saw to it that there was plenty of extra mama's milk in the icebox, and so old dad got up with that kid, and I'd warm up his milk and feed it to him and strap him in as snugly, and I would do my homework on my laptop at the dining room table with this kid. And by that time, I got that degree in 2001, which goes to show you that I'm educated far beyond my intelligence <laughs> or my ability to earn a living at it. Here's another thing that I think is evidence of a spiritual program at work, and that is the courage to change. We say it every time we say this serenity prayer, but change is the very thing that has saved our lives. We did things differently then. We must continue to do things differently ever after. Now, I suppose it's somewhat facile for me to say so, having gotten married at 45 and springing a family in my 50s and changing careers about four times. I suppose I would like change. Well, I don't like change. But change is inevitable, and I have a choice as to whether that change is going to be good for me or a detriment to me. And I choose that it will be good for me. Because you know I'm changing. When I came to AA, I had a full head of hair. I was a good-looking dog. Now I just don't have any hair. Change is inevitable, it is necessary, and we may as well cultivate it because that is what's going to make the difference in our lives. In the Keys to the Kingdom, page 275, this is what Sylvia says further. AA is not a plan for recovery that can be finished and done with. It is a way of life. As arrested alcoholics, we must have a program for living that allows for limitless expansion. We are compensated for a consistent effort by the countless dividends we receive. And oh, have I seen that to be the case. I live in a nice house in a corner with a picket fence. We have two cars. I got two little kids, one in Cub Scouts, one in Girl Scouts. They want their daddy to come down and read them books at night to put them to bed. I've got a woman that I love and adore and at least tells me she loves and adores me. We've had a great life together, and none of that would have happened if I had not come into AA. The year before I came into the program, I was involved in a group of clergy who were doing some kind of innovative and growing things to help us to become better adjusted human beings. And I had been drinking like a fish for years. As part of this, they gave us a series of tests, of psychological tests, called the MMPI. Well, I didn't know how to explain those things. I still don't. But I had that, I had that uh, MMPI with me. I kept it. And, be, and after Wendy and I had been married a little while, I showed it to her. And she looked at that and said, good God. I would never have married this man. And she put her hand on my arm and she said, this is proof positive that AA works. So in conclusion, what is
is the future for us, having changed and having been willing to change? I don't know. Sky's the limit, folks. Your history is not done being written. Again, Sylvia said in page 272 in the Keys of the Kingdom, and we wonder how much further this man could go if his alcoholic problem could be removed and he could throw 100% of his abilities into action. Well, that's, you and I are living proof of that. A story I heard years ago from another AA speaker, so appropriate to what the future could hold for us. Back during the Depression in Winchester, up at the other end of the Shenandoah Valley, where apples were the main cash crop, this, in the midst of the Depression, when no one had any job, this old boy came out of the mountains. He came into Winchester, and he was looking for a job. And he walked around looking for a job. And he saw some fellas and said, do you know anybody that needs any help? And he said, well, I saw a help wanted sign go down to the end of the block, about the third house on the right. And he goes in, knocks on the door, and is admitted into the parlor of what turns out to be Winchester's classiest cat house. And the lady who ran the place said, yes, sir, what can I do for you? He said, I heard you're looking for help. He said, yes, we're looking for an accountant. He said, well, I went to the fourth grade. I can't read. I can't write. I can only count up to 21. <laughs> but I want to have a job. She said, well, I can't use you. He said, well, ma'am, I'm so hungry. My, my stomach thinks my throat's been slit. Do you have a meal for a man. She yes, there's a peck of apples out in the kitchen. Go out and pick yourself a few and let yourself out the back door. So he does. While he's standing in there, he said, well, if I'm going to get these apples, I may as well get the best one. So he emptied the whole peck out onto the counter, and he picked out the ten best apples they had there. Polished them up on a dish rag, put them in a paper bag, and out the door he went. And while he's walking up Boscowan Street, chewing on one of these apples, a fellow comes into him and says, you know, for apple country, that's the most beautiful apple I ever saw. Do you have another? And he sold him one for a penny. And he ate another one. And he sold some more. And he had some pennies and he had a full belly. And an idea was born. The next day he went down to the fruit market. And the minute it opened. And he spent all morning buying the ten best apples in that place. He had a little to eat. And he had a little to sell. Slowly but surely he graduated to a little basket that he tied around his neck and got somebody to hand letter a sign for him and says, I take the time to choose the very best. And it worked. He graduated to a push cart, graduated to an old Model T. 25 or 30 years later, he's a multi-millionaire. He's got thousands of acres of orchards all over the country. Whole line of trucks with his name on them and that slogan, I take the time to choose the very best. Well, his lawyer came into him one day and said, you're going to have to do something about these taxes. You've got to open up a philanthropic organization. So I have the foggiest idea what one of them is. But that's what I hired you for, so go set one up. <clears throat> the next day, the lawyer comes into his office, slides a sheaf of papers across his desk and says, read them and sign them. And the man said, don't you know? I only went to the fourth grade. I can neither read nor write. And the lawyer was amazed. He said, I wonder how much further you could have gone. 
if you could have read and written. And the man said, I don't know, but I know I'd have been a bookkeeper in a whorehouse. <laughs> and with that in mind, I can hardly wait to see what's going to happen next. That's on page 374. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your time and attention. And though we may wish to lay no rule of any sort, we have often found this the best course to take. Our design for living is not a one-way street. It is good for the wife as for the husband. If we can forgive, so can she. It is better, however, that one does not needlessly name a person upon whom she can vent jealousy. Perhaps there are some cases where the utmost frankness is demanded. No outsider can appraise such an intimate situation. It may be that both will decide that they will, the way of good sense and loving kindness is to let bygones be bygones. Each night we pray about it, having the other one's happiness uppermost in mind. Keep it always in sight that we are dealing with that most terrible human emotion, jealousy. Good generalship may decide that the problem be attacked on the flank <clears throat> rather than risk a face-to-face -face combat. If we have no such complications, there is plenty we should do at home. Sometimes we hear an alcoholic say that the only thing he needs to do is to keep sober. Certainly he must keep sober or there will be no home if he doesn't. But he is yet a long way from making good to his wife or parents whom for years he has so shockingly treated. Passing all understanding is the patients, mothers, and wives have had with alcoholics. Had this not been so, many of us would have no homes today, perhaps would even be dead. The alcoholic is like the tornado rowing, roaring his way through the lives of others. Hearts are broken. Sweet relationships are dead. Affections have been uprooted. Selfish and inconsiderable habits have kept the home in turmoil. We feel a man is unthinking when he says that sobriety is enough. He is like the farmer who came up out of his cyclone cellar to find his home ruined. To his wife, he remarked, Don't see anything the matter here. <laughs> Mom, ain't it grand? The wind stopped blowing. Yes, there is a long period of reconstruction ahead. You must take the lead. A remorseful mumbling that we are sorry won't fill the bill at all. We ought to sit down with the family and frankly analyze the past as we now see it, being very careful not to criticize them. Their defects may be glaring, but the chances are their own actions are partly responsible. So we clean house with the family, asking each morning in, in meditation that our Creator show us the way of patience, tolerance, kindliness, and love. A spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. Unless one's family, unless one's family expresses a desire to live upon spiritual principle, we think we ought not to urge them. We should not talk 
incessantly to them about spiritual matters. They will change in time. Our behavior will convince them more than other more than our words. We must remember that ten or twenty years of drunkenness would make it make a skeptic out of anyone. There may be some wrongs we can never fully right. We won't worry about them if we can honestly say to ourselves that we would write them if we could. Some people cannot be seen. We send them an honest letter, and there may be a valid reason for postponement in some cases, but we don't delay if it can be avoided. We should be sensible, tactful, considerate, and humble without being servile or screaming. As God's people, we stand on our feet. We don't crawl before anyone. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace no matter how far down the scale we have gone. We will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of usefulness and self-pity will disappear. Will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook on life will change. Fear of people and economic security will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We, we think, think not. not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. This thought brings us to step 10, which suggests we continue to take personal inventory and continue to set right any new mistakes as we go along. We vigorously commence this way of living as we clean up the past. We have entered the world of the spirit. Our next function is to grow and to understand grow in understanding and effectiveness. This is not an overnight matter. <clears throat> it should continue for our lifetime. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. We discuss them with someone immediately and make amends quickly if we have harmed anyone. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. And we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. For by this time, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor. If attempted, we recoil from it from a hot flame, as from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally and will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitudes, attitude towards liquor have been given without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We are not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we have been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not been sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist from us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep fit, spiritual, 
condition. Pass. It is easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. We are headed for trouble if we do, for alcohol is a subtle fall. We are not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Every day is a day when we must carry the, wish, the vision of God's will into all our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. We can ex exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It is the proper use of the will. Much has already been said about receiving strength, inspiration, and direction from Him who has all knowledge and power. If we have carefully followed directions, we have begun to sense the flow of His Spirit into us. To some extent, we have become God-conscious. We have begun to develop this vital sixth sense, but we must go further, and that means more action. Step 11 suggests prayer and meditation. We shouldn't be shy in this matter of prayer. Better men than we are using it constantly. It works if we have the proper attitude and work at it. It would be easy to be vague about this matter, yet we believe we can make some definite and valuable suggestions. When we retire at night, we constructively review our day. Were we resentful, selfish, Dishonest or afraid? Do we owe an apology? Have we kept something to ourselves which would be discussed with another person at once? Were we kind and loving toward all? What could we have done better? Were we thinking of ourselves most of the time? Or were we thinking of what we could do for others? Of what we could pack into the stream of life? But we must be careful not to drift into worry remorse or morbid reflection, for that would diminish our usefulness to others. After making our review, we ask God's forgiveness and inquire what corrective measures should be taken. On awakening, let us think about the 24 hours ahead. We consider our plans for the day. Before we begin, we ask God to direct our thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. Under these conditions, we can employ our mental faculties with assurance, for after all, God gave us brains to use. Our thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when our thinking is clear of wrong motives. In thinking about our day, we may face indecision. We may not be able to determine which course to take. Here we ask God for inspiration, an intuitive thought or a decision. We relax and take it easy. We don't struggle. We are often surprised how the right answers come after we have tried this for a while. What used to be the hunch of the occasional inspiration gradually becomes a working part of the mind. Being still inexperienced and having just made conscious contact with God, it is not probable that we are going to be inspired at all times. We might pay for this presumption in all sorts of observed actions and ideas. Nevertheless, we find that our thinking will, as time passes, be more and more on the plane of inspiration. We come to rely upon it. We usually conclude the period of meditation with a prayer that we be shown all through the day what our next step is to be, that we be given whatever we need to take care of such problems. 
We ask especially for freedom from self and are careful to make no requests for ourselves only. We might ask for ourselves, however, if others will be helped. We are careful never to pray for our own selfish ends. Many of us have wasted a lot of time doing that, and it doesn't work. You can easily see why. If circumstances warrant, we ask our wives or friends to join us in morning meditation. If we belong to religious domination, which requires a definite morning devotion, we attend to that also. If not, members of religious bodies, we sometimes select and memorize a few set of prayers which emphasize the principles we have been discussing. There are many helpful books also. Suggestions about these may be obtained from one's priest, minister, or rabbi. Be quick to see where religious people are right. Make use of what they offer. As we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. We constantly remind ourselves we no longer are running the show, humbly saying to ourselves many times each day, Thy will be done. We are then in less much danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. We become much more efficient. We do not tire so easily, for we are not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. It works, it really does. We alcoholics are undisciplined, so we let God discipline us in a simple way we have just outlined. But this is not all. There is action and more action. Fate without works is dead. The next chapter is entirely devoted to 12, step 12. Woo! <laughs> what a reading. I'm going to with just two old drunks. <laughs> I was falling asleep for a while. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, there's so much that we just read that absolutely resonates with me, you know? I mean, I, I can't tell you how blessed I am that my my wife has continued to stay strong and stay faithful as well as I have, too. I mean, when, when we get to that little part about, you know, steering off and looking for maybe another woman that could understand. I mean, I could, I could never bring myself to ever <clears throat> think about doing that. But I tell you, all the pain and and uh, the burden that I placed on my family right now is something, like I said, that I, even though I chip, try and chip away on a daily basis, you know, it's, I feel like I'll be doing this until my, my dying day, trying to win back their, their you know, their trust and their, you know, whatever you want to call it. So that's probably the thing that hurts the most, Fernando. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, like I said, a lot of, a lot of really good stuff in this chapter. I love the, you know, the thing about if we're painstaking about this phase of our development, we'll be amazed before we are halfway through it. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness, which, you know, I I feel like I'm, you know, even though I've taken a couple occasional step backs, I, I still think that, that there is some light at the end of that tunnel. And, you know, I'm going to just keep keep pushing forward. You know, you're, you're the one to always remind me that it's 
day by day, one day at a time. Amen. I'm Fernando Alcoholic. You know, the longest a thousand steps starts with one step. A couple of little tricks that come up to my mind. Anything that comes up, write it down. Raise it up to God. God, I acknowledge that I was wrong. Thank you for forgiving me. And then throw it away. Flush it and do it. And just doing the process of anything that wants to bug you. Hey, uh, I ask God, I thank you that I ask for forgiveness. And write it down, sign it, date it, and then throw it away. And keep doing it because all we're doing is we're, uh, uh, what do you call inoculation with stronger words and taking the offense away out of our memory. You know, and it's in there, lodged in there. So anything, uh, remember we're soldiers. We, we, uh, we thank God for the problem. We write it down and get rid of it. And then if it, can, and it persists, we keep doing it and saying, yep, you're right. I did that. Write it down. And I thank you, God, for forgiving me for this. And throw it down till we clean the cesspool. You know, because those little... Those little guys, they keep coming after us. They want, they don't want to release us because they got us in their, in their uh, condemnation drinking binge. And as soon as we agree with them, yep, I messed up. I thank God I did. I write it down and then I get rid of it. I toss it. I, I keep my slate clean. I keep my consciousness clean so I can better be able to help the next guy that comes along. You know, I'm just... Giving my giving myself over to uh, uh, sterilization without alcohol. <laughs> and and, the, and all, all it is is these words. All they are is they they go in there and they unrattle my subconscious mind. Step ten, real quick, like is uh, it's an overview of anything that we could have missed in step four or five. Anything that comes up, it just it's just we live on ten, eleven, and twelve. After we get done with all the hard work. Um, and then there's the objective. There's the goal. You read it. The bottom of 83. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development. I would ask you to memorize that one. Uh, 84. The bottom uh, eight, bottom of 83. The promises. And, uh, and you'd be surprised how those words. Uh, your subconscious was saying, thank you, Van. We have uh, orders and we have a plan to run on and we're excited about it. And let's do it. You know, let's get the selfish things out of us, uh, interest in other fellows. And, and, and it'll, you know, the, the spirit will rise up on us that we have a, a program to run on. <laughs> and uh, anyway, and a long story that pages 85, 86, 87, 88 are the ones that clean the slate over and over again. I try to read those on a daily basis. That's what my sponsor told me to do. So um, that's all I got for right now. All right. Well, I think we managed our time quite well on this one, my friend. We're at about one minute to close this bad boy out. So in closing, I want to thank... Uh, everyone which would be you and me for coming out here today and participating um uh, i i'd like to give a shout out to jeff and david and for all the other alcoholics that are suffering right now um on this wonderful easter day um go and enjoy the rest of your day my friend um we are planning to have it's just me and my wife and two of my three boys we're gonna 
have a nice little bust out to China and do some eggs Benedict and I'm going to make my famous uh, hash brown potatoes and we're just going to have a, we're watching the 2019 uh, Masters final where Tiger won last year. So we're going to just got the fire started and we're just going to chill and have some family time. So enjoy the rest of your day. And how about we finish with the serenity prayer? Amen. God, God grant me a serenity, serenity to accept the things, things that cannot, that cannot change. change. The courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Thank you. All right, my friend. Good leadership. Have a great week, and I'll uh, do the right thing, and I'll stay in touch with you, all right? I'll send you some stuff. Thank you. Thank right. you very much. God bless you. Have a good Love day. You, Say hi to the family. sickened as well. 
In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. As laymen, our opinion as to its soundness may, of course, mean little. But as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that this explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. Though we work out our solution on the spiritual as well as the altruistic plane, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is very jittery or befogged. More often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached, as he has then a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. The doctor writes, The subject presented in this book seems to me to be of paramount importance to those afflicted with alcoholic addiction. I say this after many years' experience as medical directors of one of the oldest hospitals in the country treating alcoholic and drug addiction. There is therefore a sense of real satisfaction when I was asked to contribute a few words on a subject which is covered in such masterly detail in these pages. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. Many years ago, one of the leading contributors to this book came under our care in this hospital while he was acquired some ideas he put into practical application at once. Later, he requested the privilege of having been allowed to tell his story to other patients here, and with some misgiving, we consented. The cases we have followed through have been most interesting. In fact, many of them are amazing. The unselfishness of these men as we have come to know them the entire absence of profit motive and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and wearily in this alcoholic field. They believe in themselves and still, still more in the power which pulls chronic alcoholics from the gates of death. Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor, and this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. We believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol in these chronic al alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that th the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which, in, which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. If any feel that as psychiatrists directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental, let them stand with us a while on the firing line. See the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children. Let the solving of these problems become part of their daily work and even of their sleeping moments, and the most cynical will not wonder that they, we have accepted and encouraged this movement. 
we feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement now growing up among them. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks which they see others taking with impunity. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. from the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, The Doctor's Opinion, Part 2. The physician... The following is from the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, The Doctor's Opinion, Part 3. On the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol, the only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. Men have cried out to me in sincere and despairing appeal, Doctor, I cannot go on like this. I have everything to live for. I must stop, but I cannot. You must help me. Faced with this problem, if a doctor is honest with himself, he must sometimes feel his own inadequacy. Although he gives all that is in him, it often is not enough. One feels that something more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change. Though the aggregate of recoveries resulting from psychiatric effort is considerable, we physicians must admit we have made little impression upon the problem as a whole. Many types do not respond to the ordinary psychological approach. I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. I've had many men who had, for example, worked a period of months on some problem or business deal which was to be settled on a certain date, favorably to them. They took a drink a day or so prior to the date, and then the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interests so that the important appointment was not met. These, not, these men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. There are many situations which arise of the phenomenon of craving which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. The classification of alcoholics seems most difficult and in much detail is outside the scope of this book. There are, of course, the psychopaths who are emotionally unstable. We are all familiar with this type. They are always going on the wagon for keeps. They are over-remorseful and make many resolutions, but never a decision. There's the type of man who is unwilling to admit that he cannot take a drink. He plans various ways of drinking. He changes his brand or his environment. 
There's the type who always believes that after being entirely free from alcohol for a period of time, he can take a drink without danger. There's the manic depressive type who is, perhaps, the least understood by his friends and about whom a whole chapter could be written. Then there are the types entirely normal in every respect except in the effect alcohol has upon them. They're often able, intelligent, friendly people. All these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may, the ma may be the manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been, by any treatment with which we are familiar, permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. This immediately precipitates us into a seething cauldron of debate. Much has been written pro and con, but among physicians, the general opinion seems to be that most chronic alcoholics are doomed. What is the solution? Perhaps I can best answer this by relating one of my experiences. About one year prior to this experience, a man was brought in to be treated for chronic alcoholism. He had but partially recovered from a gastric hemorrhage and seemed to be a case of pathological mental deterioration. He had lost everything worthwhile in life and was only living, one might say, to drink. He frankly admitted and believed that for him there was no hope. Following the elimination of alcohol, there was found to be no permanent brain injury. He accepted the plan outlined in this book. One year later, he called to see me, and I experienced a very strange sensation. I knew the man by name and partly recognized his features, but their all resemblance ended. From a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck had emerged a man brimming over with self-reliance and contentment. I talked with him for some time, but was not able to bring myself to feel that I had known him before. To me, he was a stranger, and so he left me. A long time had passed with no return to alcohol. When I need a mental uplift, I often think of another case brought in by a physician prominent in New York. The patient had made his own diagnosis and, deciding his situation hopeless, had hidden in a deserted barn determined to die. He was rescued by a searching party and in desperate condition brought to me. Following his physical rehabilitation, he had a talk with me in which he frankly stated he thought the treatment was a waste of effort unless I could assure him, which no one ever had, that in the future he would have the willpower to resist the impulse to drink. His alcohol problem was so complex and his depression so great that we felt his only hope would be through what was then called moral psychology, and we doubted even if that would have any effect. However, he did become solely on the ideas contained in this book. He has not had a drink for a great many years. I see him now and then, and he is a fine specimen of manhood as one would wish to meet. I earnestly advise every alcoholic to read this book through and through. Perhaps he to come to scoff. He may remain to pray. William D. Silkworth, M.D. Reading from today is page 157 of the Alcoholic Anonymous Big Book. My name is Fernando. I am a recovered alcoholic, recovered drunk, meaning I don't, so I don't have a soggy bottom anymore. My nose, my lips, and my car looking the same with the headlight hanging out to the side, you know, the turn signal. 
on, click, 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 trying to make a right turn, but I always ended up making left turns because I saw a cop ahead of me. Anyway, I'm going to be reading from uh, a vision from you. I, I went to a meeting I didn't have a chance to share, but you are my captive audience, so I'm going to share with you from page 157. Now, the story is that we, Bill and Dr. Bob, went to see their, their first 12-stepper. They 12-stepped a guy in the hospital, and they both got together um, after Bill had realized that he was going to drink. He, in this chapter, A Vision for You, fear set in when his business didn't go right. The story goes, so he got on the phone and he met Dr. Bob and it's history from now. About 15 million people have gone through the same process. I like the way Bill and Bob express the thing. It says, if you want to get sober, it's our business. If you don't want to get sober and keep doing what you're doing, that's good. So they, uh, they laid out all these spiritual tools in this guy's feet and the amazing thing about it is that he jumped from he jumped to the third step seems like he already knew God he goes but that wouldn't work for me anyway because he prayed like the Dickens every morning for the hangover he had or for the relief to come but he would pick up that drink again and it just came came uh you know, he was a very sick man in the hospital, and he was totally licked. So, uh, just let me read a little bit. It says, Yeah, that's me, said the sick man. The very image, you fellas know your stuff all right. But I don't see what good he'll do. You fellas are somebody. I was once somebody, but I'm nobody now. From what you're telling me, I know more than ever I can't stop because of the eternal disease. At this both the visitors, Bill and Bob, started to laugh and said the future fellow anonymous said, damn little to laugh about that I can see. The two friends spoke of their spiritual experience and told him about the course of action they carried out. He interrupted them. I used to be a strong church member, but that won't fix it. I pray to God on hangover mornings and sworn that I'll never touch another drop but by nine o'clock, I'd be boiled as an owl. Next day, found the prospect. We came back the next day, Bob and Bill. Found the prospect more receptive. He had been thinking it over. And he said, maybe your fellows are right. God ought to do, be able to do anything he wishes to do. Then he added, he sure did, didn't do much for me when I was trying Time, trying to fight the booze racket alone, that's the key, alone. God didn't do much for me when I was trying to fight this booze thing alone. On the third day, the lawyer gave his life to the care of his director and direction of his creator. Okay, The care and direction of his creator. He said he was perfectly willing to do anything necessary. Okay, that was a commitment there. That was step three, if you notice. He already had been step. He, they understood the problem. They understood uh, the sanity, the insanity. And then he made the decision on step three to make the quality choice to turn his life over to Creator. Okay, a quality step three. Okay. 
direction and care. So how do we uh, how do we remember that we had done that quality decision? You know, it's a choice to trust. You thrust your life over to the hands of your Creator and you leave it there. But you know, we as alcoholics, we keep crawling away from the altar. You know, we keep placing ourselves in full dedication to God. And you know how to, that's what problems are for. Problems are to remind us that we made a choice to, to be put on the Creator's arms and hands or in His altar, turn the things over to our higher power. You know, if our higher power is worth his salt, he's going he's gonna to take care of us. He's going to give us signs that he's taking care of us. And that is so huge, man, in this world. Why should we have a creator that cares so much and, and communicates with us so lovingly in any way of emotional default we could be in? We can be under the rug with our emotions and he'll still go down there and talk to us. We don't need to go down anymore emotionally, self-pity, woes me, because we know our higher power is there and he talks to us with clarity and truth. So stand up, make the choice, make the quality choice, you're gonna trust God. So the way I do it, I said, I thank God I'm a misfit when I messed up. I thank God, I thank God for opportunities, problems, desires. You know, we need 95% failure to win in life. And we got, we're, a lot of us are more, more than qualified to get that 5% of success so we can live serene, happy, well-to-do lives. It would behoove us, I like that word, behoove us, to stop being bombastic and, and, and stay away from the booze by making a quality decision to turn our lives and our care, that's our entertainment, that's our adventure, our peace, resources, health, intelligence. You know, the greatest thing that we can get from uh, this program is, is, is so, it says it's more valuable than gold and silver. And that's not our health, more valuable than gold and silver. You know what it is? It's wisdom and understanding, wisdom and knowledge. You know how we used to say, I used to say, I know how to do right, but man, I made the same mistake over again. I made that left turn again instead of making the right. Now, because of Walk Hawk Anonymous, and people are showing me how, how to have the power to do right, I can make right-hand turns. I can, I can have that car drive to the, to the club Instead of that 55 Chevy, it conked out twice the points in front of the bar. I just had just enough time to turn into the club, the bar club. Um, it just had a magnet towards the negativity. So my point being is that the, the biggest thing for me was first, I was void of hope. You know, when I came to AA, I was void of uh, talents and skills. I was void of confidence. I was void of faith. I was void of believing when I came into AA. And I was, and trust was not even an issue. It was way out there. I didn't trust anybody. I wasn't talking to nobody. They left me alone for a year, like a wild man. You know, they stapled me to the wall and spoon fed me AA. So, 
the point I'm making is learning to thrust. Thrust yourself into your, the hands of your higher power and leave it there and thank them. Even if wrong's happening, even if you think God is picking on you, you keep thanking him and thanking him. Though he slay me, I still will praise him. I still will thank him. Now that's, that'll show what vinegar you're made out of. That'll show how much salt you have in your life, how much grit, how much of a commitment you can make to, your, to yourself and to God and to those around you. I commit to turn my life and my will to my Creator as I understand Him. All the way live, all the way effective, completely. You know what I get on the other what I get? I get peace. I get a sense of tranquility. I get where I should have been in the first place when I uncovered myself. This is a program of recovering, and that's the covering. The covering that you have authority higher power love covering you like a dome and it goes with you it's activated in AA working with others all right now we have had a pretty good meeting here I hope I didn't leave any uh, open cans of worm out there and you remember that step three is the one we all are fighting with in six and seven that's why one of the reasons Bill wrote so little about six and seven because when you do a quality three, you have grounded. You know, you know how to ground your character defects. If you're, if you're constantly messing up, say, thank you, God, I'm messing up. Uh, thank you, God, I'm doing this mess up. And that, should, that solution there, those words, and your willingness should dissolve that bad habit. Always works, always will be. It's a pr spiritual principle. Principle is that you're being rewarded because you're seeking your higher powers counsel. Come on now. Counsel. It's all about counsel and receiving, accepting the information that you've been crying wolf about. That I've been crying wolf about. It's here. It's in the books. It's in helping others, sharing our stories like this. All right. Let's go ahead and finish, close up our meeting. We'll just say the, um, the third step prayer, okay? Some of us know it. I'm going to do it slowly so those who don't know it can follow me. God, I offer myself to you that you would build with me and do with me as you would. Relieve me of the bondage yourself that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those that would help of thy power, of thy love, of thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Amen. Okay, that's on page 63 of the big book. Have a great day. Keep coming back. Stay.